looking at today is our last one on joy. If you've missed it, you're welcome to jump back online and catch each of these sermons that I've preached over the past. Um, I've had a blast working through them just to uh, get an idea of what it is that God meant when he said uh, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice or the kingdom of God is a kingdom of healing. All of these things are really good. Today, we're reading out of Isaiah chapter 35. We're talking about joy. Um, as we start today... You might expect me to head straight to Philippians 4, verse 4, uh, and to tell you to rejoice always. Rejoice always, you know. But I'm not sure that's where we're at as a community, as a country, as a town, or as a world at the moment. Maybe you'd expect me to talk about Christmas or Advent and the joy of seeing my wife put up a tree the week after Halloween. I've got to be honest, as a, as a church, it's hard to rejoice when there's uncertainty. It's hard to rejoice when things are changing, particularly as we've lost our pastor, uh, our other pastor, so on and so forth. Um, and so I wanted to start back with something more familiar to us, and that links with Jesus' own culture. If you flick back to the first picture, if we can get Sisyphus back up there. Has anybody heard the story of Sisyphus? If you've gone to university, you've probably heard of it, uh, or done any study in Greek uh, culture. Sisyphus was the first king of Ephyra, now known as the city of Corinth, and although he was a clever ruler who made his city prosperous, he was also a devious tyrant who seduced his niece, killed visitors to show off his power. The violation of this sacred hospitality tradition greatly angered the gods, and his punishment does anybody know? I've got a couple nods. I'll take one from the back. Nobody in the back? I will go over here. push a heavy stone up the top of a hill, and when it gets to the top, he can leave hell. That's good. Okay. What happens to the stone, though? Whenever he gets close to the top, it rolls all the way back down again, and he has to start pushing again, right? And so Greek mythology is filled with these stories of the gods inflicting gruesome horrors on mortals who angered them, and yet this story of punishment isn't remembered for its outrageous cruelty. It's remembered for its disturbing familiarity. Koine Greek was the trading language of the day. Jesus would have had an understanding of this language and he would have known as well the Greco-Roman polytheistic beliefs of those around him. Just like Paul would have in Acts 17 when he spoke at the Areopagus, you know, to the unknown God, to all of the gods in the Pantheon there. This idea of Sisyphus and our human condition, the repetitive nature of our day, you know, get up, go to work, come home, eat, shower, sleep, get up go to work, <laughs> uh, come home, eat, shower, sleep, repeat. How do we find joy in that? You know, So the Greeks were obviously aware of it because they wrote this story of Sisyphus. Um, the Hebrew rabbis and scholars, well, even the book of Ecclesiastes written around 300 before Jesus made it into the wisdom literature section of the Bible. Romans 8 verse 19 and 20 also speak of creation groaning in anticipation of change. So what was Jesus' response to that plotting, to that groaning, to that Sisyphean way of task or life? When, when Jesus pictured the kingdom of God in Mark 2, why would joy be in this picture? Jesus, as he shared the kingdom of God, would have understood that in amongst the crazy ups and downs and sometimes the monotony, the joy is actually a really good response. 
Hang on a second. What? Hang on. Hang on. When Jesus came, in what manner did he come? Well, yeah, he came as a baby, and the angels announced the good news of great, Luke 2 verse 10, great joy, thank you. But Jesus, what did that look like when it outworked for him as he grew up? The Son of Man came, finish the sentence, Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, good. And there's two others, the Son of Man came. Son of Man came eating and drinking. Yep, Son of Man came eating and drinking. And what was his first miracle in John chapter 2? Wedding at Cana. Okay, there's festivity in there. Why would Jesus see joy and moments of festivity as important in his ministry? What pictures would Jesus look to to describe the kingdom of God to people? Why joy? And so if you've got your Bibles with you, open up, have it in your lap, Isaiah 35. As we look to, um, look to our passage today, we want to see these pictures that Jesus looked to. We want to see this poetic and prophetic ideal that Jesus would have drawn on. Isaiah 35, when we look at verse 1, it gives us this perfect hint, this perfect idea of what our writer's poetic context was. Where does he place us as we look at this topic of joy? Verse 1. We're in the desert. We're in the desert. We're in the wilderness. Okay, immediately for those in Jewish context, the deserts would take them back to the time of Moses, wandering in the wilderness. And I think this is somehow paralleling where we're at today. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Are we in, a, are we in this sort of unknown? Are we in the wilderness? COVID, you know, craziness. And sometimes even with Christmas, man, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I'm just lost. I've got, I've got so much going on. You know, how can I step back out of myself? Uh, and look to joy. Um, if I were a pilgrim wandering through the desert, how might I look to joy? Okay, so we're going to break today into two parts. We're going to look at joy for the world. We're going to look at joy for self, or how can I um, be a part of that? And then we're going to say joy for direction. Okay, I've been asked to have more points. Okay, so we've got points today. Okay, so points. Um, joy for a new world, new life, and a new direction. Okay, so as we come to this chapter, we also want to remember that it's being at the conclusion of a grouping of chapters about salvation and deliverance, that other uh, hexagon that we had up on the screen before. Feel free to go online, find that teaching. Remember as we start that as we hit this passage about joy, it actually comes at the culmination of a group of chapters where it's saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, you're doing it wrong, you're lost, you don't know the way, how are we going to get past this? Okay, And so as we get to the end of that, we come into this space where it's like, actually, we're going to have a look at joy now. Okay, let's read uh, 35 verse 1 and 2. It says this, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Okay, so point one, new world. So when we think of it, in the moment, life can sometimes be sisyphusian, without meaning, dull. What does the kingdom look like when it's outworked and lived by those inside it? If we're going to take ourselves back to the desert, it's going to look like Numbers chapter 20, when Moses struck the rock and water freely flowed. The idea of living in the kingdom of God is one where life turns from darkness into light, from desert to blossoming flower. This week I sat with somebody for two hours. I spoke with them on these ideas of theology, salvation. When I spoke with them, the main cause of the pain in their life was regret. The regrets about the world they live in 
are with them and the main cause of pain in their life was regret. Sorry, I just read that twice. The regrets about the world they live in are squashing them. And so they have this inability to deal with and forgive past hurts. An inability to accept themselves from God's viewpoint and see the compassion and grace that God would cover in that particular situation and the people that they found themselves with. You know, I'm sure it's the same for you guys. Uh, your testimony would involve an element of guilt or shame, a sin or a personal problem that you couldn't get past. But when you're part of the kingdom, things come into focus. Flowers that were distant imagining become reality. Healing from these wounds, knowing of God in the world, become a balm to the burn. The world changes from darkness to gloom. Darkness and gloom to daylight. Sorry. When we share our testimony with those around us, what, we, what are we doing if not painting a picture for our audience of how we were in the desert and dry, and now that we've understood our relationship with God in a new way, we've become reborn. And we're actually free to be who we were created to be in Christ. And it's been amazing for me as I've, I've shared this with people this week. I've actually shared this twice with people this week. Who is it that I truly am in my deepest self? Um, and how am I meant to interact with the world? You know, what is it that makes me me? What is it that makes you you? And how are we actually meant to embrace and in interact with the world? And actually, God has freed us and given us this world in which we are to be ourselves, right? And so God's gifted us with a shape. And I love this, this idea of shape, and I shared this twice this week with people. This idea of we've got spiritual gifts that God's given us, we've got passion, we've got abilities, we've got... I'm in trouble. Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, passions, and experiences. And all of these things will help form us into who we are and what we're meant to be as we look into this world that God has created around us. And then what we are in relation to that. Okay, And so as we, um, as we look at this new year, I actually love to run a course on shape, what and who we are in Christ, who God has made you to be. And what this does, this actually harks back to Eden. Who is your truest self? Without all the masks that we cover up over ourselves to embrace and, and interact with the world, we want to actually take ourselves back to Eden. We want to take these masks off. We don't need the leaves. Sorry, that's a bad image. Okay. Before we need, you know, we don't need these masks anymore to cover ourselves in this new world of joy. Okay. And so as we keep going through these verses, okay, we're going to look for change in our world, we're going to see, um, as we look for change in our world, we're going to see references to place names. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 2, uh, Isaiah 35, verse number 2. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon will see the glory of the Lord. What are these place names about? Right. Lebanon in the Old Testament, Psalm 104, is known for supplying cedar for the temple and the castles. These uh, cedar trees from Lebanon, the best, the tallest, the strongest, the peak of glory. The peak of glory in these trees. Okay, so it's not just trees from down here in Margaret River. It's trees from Lebanon, people, I'm telling that. The glory of Lebanon will be given to this place in the kingdom. And it keeps feeding into this idea of a life where we're at the peak of being seen for who we are and what the world truly is with all its inherent worth on display which will be shown and is given or revealed to those that are in the kingdom or looking at the kingdom. You following with me? 
So the kingdom is a kingdom of joy because the world will recognize immediately what is worthy, what is right, what is glorious. And conversely, they'll also recognize what's worthless. And they won't be doing that. They'll be doing what's the joyful thing. They'll know immediately. Carmel's literal translation, if we keep going with the place names, is garden land. And Sharon, uh, which is actually referenced out of Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It gives us that standard of what beauty actually is. Splendor like Sharon. Is there a Sharon in the room? No? Okay, doesn't matter. Okay, but what we're looking at is a rose among thorns. That is the difference when you're walking with joy in your life. You actually recognize, hang on a second, I've been called out of, when I accept the kingdom on my life and I accept walking in the kingdom, my life, as I look at it, is actually really beautiful. And what I came from, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Right? Thistles. Yeah? A rose amongst thistles. Okay, so this is what Jesus is inviting people to. And, you know, I've seen this revival and lift in people who have come to know Christ. I've seen it in conversations with parents whose kids are making wise choices now regarding drug and alcohol usage for their weekend plans. You know, parents blank-faced in amazement when an alternative to getting drunk with mates is offered and the kids grasp at it. Oh, that sounds great because it's all about the kingdom. And it's like, actually, I see what's good and inherently good and I see actually what's worthless and actually isn't going to be helpful for my life if I pursue that. Yeah, so I've seen the revival and lift in that. And it's amazing what happens. The kingdom is a kingdom where joy is apparent and a new world is on offer that makes our kingdomless, kingdomless choices look like thistles next to a rose. We're going to move into the next section. Joy is about having a new life. Verse 3 and 4, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. Verse 7, the burning sands will become a pool, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. It's important to recognize that we're moving from a communal idea of joy in our world to a personal one here. So we were just talking about the difference in the world. Now we're going to actually center in on ourselves here for a little bit. Okay. This rose world, it needs people fit to live in it. And so we're called to strengthen our resolve to step up into this new life, especially in our personal reactions and interactions, in our maintenance of our own character, to trust in the process, to endure the struggle. Because it is a struggle. But we're, we're called here to strengthen ourselves. It's a shame that in our wandering, and even after a sign of life or a miracle, that we can fall back into grumbling. I've seen some amazing things happen through what God has done in my life and through, if my wife was here, she would love to tell you a story about some miracles that she's, um, she knows people in Argentina who have been healed um, through the prayer of the church. Um, here in Australia, a little bit less so, but I've still seen revival and lift in amazing ways. But it's a shame that after these signs of life or these miracles that we can still fall back to grumbling. We can forget what it is that God is doing in the world. The Israelites in the desert, it took them three days, three days to start grumbling 
after walking through the Red Sea. Exodus 15, just after the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, they had wandered in the desert three days. They were starting to complain about a lack of water. They wandered on, and in their wandering, they eventually did find what they were after, an oasis. They came across an oasis, but it was bitter. You know, sometimes we find that in our lives, whether it's an interpersonal problem or a practical one. We, we try and sort something out, but actually it's just, no matter what I try, it turns bitter sometimes. When I was up in Perth, uh, you know, I, for a practical example, um, I was a carpenter, I liked digging holes. You know, it was a necessary part of my job. I liked the idea of uh, going to Bunnings. My consumeristic nature tends me towards this. I go to Bunnings, I look at the shovels, I buy the best shovel, the most expensive shovel, the biggest shovel. The best shovel. Yes. Yes. Really happy with this shovel up in Perth. It, it filled the hole that I had. Actually, and it filled the hole literally as well. But I bring it down here to Margaret River and I try and use this shovel in Margaret River. And does this biggest, the best shovel work with the widest mouth? No, because the soil here is clay and it goes rock hard during summer. And so what do you, what do, you do with this? And so now I'm faced with this bitterness. I've had this shovel, I moved down to Margaret River five years ago. This shovel has been sitting in my shed for five years now. I am bitter about having this shovel. Does anybody want to shovel? <laughs> no one like that. <laughs> no one like that, that's right. And so there's this idea here that we sort of have this uh, bitterness and resentment. We sort these problems out ourselves. We, we try and, yes, I'll do this and I'll fill this hole and I'll, I'll do it under my own strength and it'll be great. But actually, what do we need? We need the wisdom of actually what we need before we need it. If only I'd bought the shovel that was just less than the best shovel. I don't know. I don't know. But sometimes the things that, the things that we think are going to bring us joy actually don't bring us joy. The Israelites just witnessed some of the biggest miracles of the millennium. And yet they didn't trust in God's provision. And it's the same for us sometimes. We can wander aimlessly for years going through this cycle of discontentment and then thinking that we've solved the problem and then bitterness. And then when we recognize the problem is still there, you know, it's, it's time to trust in something else. Time to trust in something else to fill that hole in us. Time for a different shovel, time for a different solution. And so when we're called into the kingdom, we're asked to consider different parts of our own body and how we might put them to the task of wandering through this desert that we're in. We're all wandering and we all need to strengthen each other. We need to strengthen each our own hands. Verse 3, the part of the body that reflects that personal touch. We need to strengthen our knees, the part of our body that brings us stability. And if we're in community, the part of the body that brings the uh, stability to a church community and a gathering. How are they operating? Are they operating okay? And then lastly, how are we nourishing our hearts? Verse 4. Are we burning out? Are we being fearful about things that we have no control over? Are we burning out over things that actually have little impact on God's ultimate plan for humanity? How much do we trust God at his word to provide for us as a church, personally? You know, it's time to give it over to God. 
Why are we surprised sometimes that life is difficult? From the poet's context, we're in the desert. Those who are pilgrims on the path don't actually see the blossoming. They only see the barrenness. For those in the Exodus, the blossoming only came when they walked the path. For those in the Red Sea or those after the Red Sea, that bitter lake or oasis, it actually did turn drinkable, finally through faith in God. The struck rock that let forth water in verse 6, through faith in God. So much so that when faith is applied to the picture, the desert stops being a desert and it turns into a marsh with grass and reeds teeming with life, useful for creation and recreation. Faith brings joy through walking in the wilderness. In faith, the kingdom, in faith, in the kingdom, we have new life. Now in Matthew 11 verse 30, we see Jesus saying to his followers, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say that there won't be a yoke. and We all have to go on a walk. We all have to do life. We all have to embrace this human condition, but freedom comes in letting go of those things we have no control over, accepting God's overarching movement in the world that brings us peace and allows us joy. You all with me? It's good. Okay, let's move on to our last section, a new path to take, a new direction. What have I got up here? And a highway will be there, verse 8. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. The word highway here is literal. It's a path that is actually higher than the other paths. Often you'll have people calling out to you to drag you down into their troubles. You know, hey, come and take this lower path with me. But on the path that we walk as Christians, the only way we'll lose track of this higher path is if we choose to walk the lower path. The only way we'll lose track of this high path is if we choose to walk the lower path. And this is why we need to strengthen our hands and our knees. Once you're up on the high path, there are requirements for you to meet. You need to live as God has called you to live. Holiness, righteousness, justness, fulfilling the role of an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You can't get around these things. The yoke we bear is to do this, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. As you open your eyes to the path, you'll see that there are foolish people who ignore even the remote possibility of a way of holiness and they won't be able to actually stumble into this path by accident. It's only those that are on the path that are there for a purpose. What's the purpose? To point the people to a better way. Those on other paths can't see the things that we see. That's really sad. But that we see them, actually, that's really joyful. It's a dichotomy. Those that are on other paths can't see the things we see. They can't grasp the splendor of the world in verse 2. They can't imagine living life without the protective walls that we put up between people, the masks that we put on to cover ourselves. They can't imagine being truly seen for who they are, even for us. Are we able to walk this path without putting these masks on? 
knowing that it reveals us for who we are if we choose to walk in these ways in the kingdom. The theologian Newbigin said, the church is a sign and foretaste of the kingdom of God. A sign in that when we gather here, we proclaim God's existence and his kingdom as it truly is. It's a sign of that kingdom to all who come in. And for those that don't walk this path of fellowship, the church is actually a foretaste of the kingdom of of God and what it looks like to those around us, encompassing all these ideals you know, of the, the hexagon uh, that are prophetically spoken by Isaiah. You know, joy, peace, deliverance, presence, restoration of community, justice, healing. Everybody who's not on this high path, whenever we interact with them, they get a taste of what it is that God is doing in the world when we reveal these things of the kingdom to them. Because that's our way that we try to live in through Jesus' strength through the Spirit. There are those on the other paths that we could actually say are the opposite, that they're characterized by scared of being revealed, scared of connection, oblivious to the highway. They might only glimpse joy, might chance upon peace, might live in lostness. They might ignore God's presence or existence. They might put up with broken communities. They might yearn for justice. They might long for healing. And yet at the same time, we're uh, comforted by the shedding of these external masks to become our true self. We're free. The Lord has rescued us from that path and in the kingdom we can be truly known and have no fear. A true return journey back to Eden. And when we're in the garden, it'll be a truly great place of joy. There's a one-minute video I'd love for you to watch. I'm not sure if it'll come up all right. This is taken from the Monday night practices that we've been putting into getting ready for the carols. Um, In this video, we have a couple of people from other churches that are in town and a few of the other churches' people that are helping to sing, preparing for the carols. In this video, I'm not sure if you'll catch it, but the joy that is in this room, it is a sign of the people that believe in the kingdom in that space. It's amazing to experience the joy in that space just as we're practicing. And then after that, there is, um, you know, as we embrace and do carols out on the 10th next Friday night, Friday? Yeah, next Friday night, uh, out on the footy oval, it's going to be an amazing foretaste to those people that aren't in the kingdom, what joy the kingdom can be. Maria, are you able to double-click that icon on the desktop and see if it flows up?
you get the idea. So this this whole thing is about uh the joy that's in the room, but it's a sign of the kingdom. It's a foretaste of the kingdom. It is a gift of God to us to experience joy in our worship of God as we do it. That's so good. Everyone say, yeah, Damo. Yeah, it's good, right? Anyway, so come on. Come to the carols on the 10th. It's going to be awesome. Coming back to today's text, uh, the imagery. Okay, The evangelical in me wants to go down and force those walking on the lower paths up the mountain. But that's not how God works. You know, instead, we look for times and places to be this foretaste for those who see the value in the kingdom, to come alongside and be co-workers in revealing what this kingdom would look like to those around us, which is why I've thrown snakes and ladders up there. Um, you know, hey, there's a ladder here. Come on, an easier way. Come up the path. Choose a different path. Take, is it a shortcut? Ooh. I don't know if I'd go that far. No. But, um, you know, at the same time, the Reformed theologian in me wants to sit back and just allow God to do all the work. God will call who he wants to call, and I'll just sit back. But I think both of these reactions, you know, the evangelical, let's go out, we're going to go grab a harvest, and, and no, no, it's for God to do the work in people's hearts. Actually, it's a both end. It's a, it's, are they both right? Are they both wrong? No, there's something in the middle there. And so let's, how, let's have a look at how we can conclude today, okay? Why would there be mention of a journey in this passage? Why is there need to strengthen our hands if, not, if we're not to be involved in this journey in calling people along? God is calling us to acknowledge who we are and to use these gifts, that personal shape for his kingdom's advancement in the world. At the same time, it's the Lord that does the rescuing in verse 10 which we'll come back on shortly. It's the Lord who rescues those that return from the journey. And so what we do here is just a foretaste, a remembrance that God has already done the hard part of salvation for those who choose the high path, and now it's time to get on with pushing that stone up the hill. We're in Ecclesiastes, a book known for exploring the meaningless of life. You know, that ends its book in saying, actually, we're just to honour God and do our duty. We're to go through life, enjoying the glory of life that we see through those cedars in Lebanon, knowing who put them there. We're to enjoy the splendor of marriage and the purest form of knowing somebody intimately this side of heaven. But then as we push our stone up the hill, unlike Sisyphus, when we take the higher path, walking slowly up the hill, At the end of the hill, we will have actually reached our goal. Accomplished for us by Jesus, a true covering, enabling us to let go of our regrets, to cover our sins, to take our rough-sewn masks that we use to hide our shames, holding on to Jesus, we walk with him and we see the splendor of the world through his eyes, ignoring things that would have made us walk the lower paths. We're nearly finished. Okay. And so as we walk these paths, we see our three points for today. Three points. Okay. We see and know the joy uh, seen visibly in the world around us, you know, with God's hands moving and shaping. Second one, we experience the joy from knowing our covering as we walk as new creations. We have that new life for ourselves. 
The third point, uh, and finally, as we do these things that are signs and foretastes of the kingdom, as our way of showing the new path, a higher path, it will cause people to evaluate the path that they have chosen. But it's also going to bring healing to us. And so to finish, I love, um, I love the calls of joy that we find in this passage. You'll know that I've skipped a whole heap of text in this passage. And I think Jesus knew these intimately, and he walked in these also. So please, as we close, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to just pray the words that were found in verses 5 and 6 and 10 to end the sermon today. So please bow your heads. says this in verse 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Verse 10. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Lord God, I pray for us today Lord, that you would open blind eyes. Lord, if we've had trouble hearing what you've been wanting to do in our life in the past, Lord, I pray that we would unstop our ears. And Lord, that you would do that by your spirit for us this morning. Lord, for those that have uh, dodgy knees, Lord, I pray you'd, you'd strengthen them. And Lord, that the lame, uh, the lame would leap like a deer. Lord, I pray for us as we go and uh, encounter our community and as we engage within each other. Uh, Lord, that our mute tongue, the one that tends to go grumbling, Lord, would actually tend to joy and to speak joy uh, to those around us this week and especially as we enter into Advent uh, with our families and with our community. Lord, thank you so much for your rescue of us. Lord, thank you for Jesus and the salvation that he provides to cover us. Lord, thank you that we can walk this higher path holding on to him. Lord, we look forward to that day of gladness and joy. Lord, we look forward to that day when there'll be no more sorrow and no more sighing. Thank you that this is a part of your kingdom, Lord Jesus. We are so, so grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.